So we have some teachers at Novation, and we just started back to school, which is unbelievable that September is this week. And I know all you students are super excited to, to be back at school, right? And, and those of you who are having to homeschool that have never done that before, right on. I bet that's exciting. But it got me to think about the, the, the power of a teacher, how much influence a teacher has on somebody's life. I went to Campbell Elementary. Anybody else go to Campbell? You were a Campbell Cougar? Right on. And um, I was thinking about how I think it still is this way in elementary school, but I had the same teacher all day for every subject. In kindergarten, I had Mrs. Eklund. Okay, I'm 52. I know I don't look a day over 51, but I can remember all these teachers. Mrs. Eklund. Kindergarten, Mrs. Tomko, first grade, Mrs. Turner, second grade, Mrs. Thompson, in the third grade, we all had a crush on Mrs. Thompson. Fourth grade, Mrs. Loniker, fifth grade, Mrs. Cross, and sixth grade, Mr. Jones. And I was thinking, which one of those was my favorite? And it came down to Mrs. Cross and Mr. Jones. I'm pretty sure they're both in heaven, so they won't ever hear this right now. But Mr. Jones just just by a, by a thread. He was such a good guy. He was so creative in how he taught, and he genuinely cared about each one of his students. He did it in such a cool way. And, you know, there's not many male elementary school teachers in, in, in the world anyway, but he had a, a way to speak into our lives, and, and I knew there was something different about him. And I'd say about 10 or 15 years ago, I visited my brother's church and he told me Mr. Jones went to their church. So I went to the church, and I went and found him, and I said, Mr. Jones, I said, you're such a good teacher. You're my all-time favorite teacher. You influenced me. He started bawling in front of me, and you just know the power of wanting to be a good influence, to be a good example, and he, he was that to us. We're in this series called My Two Sons where we went through 2 Timothy, where Paul taught Timothy the gospel. He influenced him on how to do ministry, how to pastor. And then now we started Titus last week, his other son in the faith, and we'll conclude that next week. But um, the important part about Titus is he he was left behind, Paul left him behind on the island of Crete. Paul and his companions would go do ministry preach the gospel, uh, raise up a a church, raise up leaders, and then they would move on and keep preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, on the island of of Crete, um, they started some churches, and he leaves Titus behind to take care of the churches. Now, the island of Crete was a very, very, very unhealthy world, barbarians type, you know, madness type stuff. But the gospel transforms even the craziest of cultures because it transforms even the craziest of people. It transforms broken people, unhealthy people, into the likeness of Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. And so he is telling Titus, how do you pastor a church, a healthy church, in an unhealthy culture? Does that sound familiar? That's what we're striving for here. So we're going to go through chapter 2. And we're going to see what Paul taught Titus to teach to his people, 
He said, says, teach these things. And there's a, an Oreo cookie, so to speak. The top cookie is verse 1. The bottom cookie is verse 15. And everything in between is the frosting that is the things he was to teach. So he says, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then in verse 15, he says, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So I'm going to use the acronym TEACH so you can remember these five things that Paul taught Titus teach to his people that we can apply into our life in our church today. The first thing that Paul tells Titus to do is to, to teach the older to be good examples to the younger. Teach the older to be good examples to the younger. I'm so grateful in our church for folks that are, that are older, that are mentors, people who've been through life following Jesus. And we have such good examples of, of that in our, in our fellowship for young people like me to follow your example. Right, Phil? Um, he says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in the faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, similarly <laughs> encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. What does it mean to be a good example? I think sometimes to be a good example, we can shame our kids. Coaches can shame their players. Hey, you should set a better example. You be the example. And I get what people are doing in that, but we shouldn't use that to shame, right? We should to encourage and call out good in others. This week, I text several people in the church and ask them to tell me briefly um, some, how older people in their life have set an example, whether it's mom or dad or whoever in their life, maybe Mr. Jones, right? How did somebody set a good example? And I just want to read some of these to you. These are, these are powerful. One person, I'm going to leave them anonymous, but one person said, my dad showed me the importance of doing a good job for my own benefit. And my father-in-law has shown me what it looks like to lead in servanthood. Somebody else said, my dad taught me how to serve, how to genuinely care for people and to serve your heart out. Then this person called out Rick Enox. If you don't know Rick, he's one of our, our older gentlemen in our church. He said, I love watching Rick worship. Actually said, I love seeing his older frame swaying for Jesus, but uh, Rick knows what we're talking about. Um, and several other people that had influenced uh, this person's life. Somebody else said, my dad was always present, and he always made time with me a priority. He's the most reliable person I have ever met. He's also very blue-collar and works very hard. He gives his best to whatever he does, and I believe that rubbed off on me. Somebody else said, my mom was so dedicated to knowing my heart 
setting an exa excellent example of being a hard worker, endlessly compassionate and, a, compassionate and a servant leader. Somebody else actually sent me a text and said that they didn't feel like they had many examples in their life of an older example, that being raised in the church they were raised in, that they actually want to be opposite of what examples that they saw. That is the power of being an example. You can be a positive or a negative example to somebody. Somebody else said, my dad was a cheerful giver. That's the best thing he taught me. Somebody else said, my father is, was, always a great provider, an example of head of the household. And then somebody said that their grandmother has been an incredible example of a strong woman of God. She has gone through many trials, clings to God even more as she goes through them. Anytime I was upset, she reminded me about God's promises. She is strong in the will not to be moved from her faith no matter what sense. Man. And somebody else said that they can remember their mom every morning sitting at their wooden kitchen table, reading the Word of God with a cup of coffee, and how that exemplified for them what it meant to have daily intake of God's Word, as we're just meditating on with Susie as well. And then their parents had good Christian friends, did life with their, with their Christian friends, and that modeled for this person what the importance of being in community was. And somebody else said, my mom was a wonderful example for me, and she was an excellent listener, strong and unwavering. She had strong family values, and she loved wholeheartedly. Just a small taste of the power of being a good example. My dad's 83 years old, and uh, I love my dad. Such a good example of being a dad to me. I always strive to to be a dad like him because he, we knew we were, we were a priority to him. And every time I go see him, I always tell him, Dad, you're the best dad. Thank you for being the best dad. And I always remind him that he has 30 grandkids. And he goes, 30? Geez. <laughs> he's like, he forgot he has 30. I have to remind him he's 83. 83? Gee whiz. But uh, it's kind of funny. He always gets shocked. But, man, I said, Dad, you know, and he always says, yeah, not too bad for a guy you know, only child raised by his dad and his grandpa. So good job, dad. He's a good example. Second thing, um, I think Paul is teaching Titus to teach to his people is to emphasize integrity in everything. Emphasize integrity in everything. You know, integrity is an important thing. He says, in your teaching, show integrity seriousness, and sound of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Integrity is no compromise. It's honesty. It's being authentic. It's being true. Jesus was the ultimate person of integrity. Some people came to him in the Gospels, and they, they said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. They saw it. Integrity oozed out of Jesus' character. It oozed out of who he was. And it's interesting, the, the word um, sincere 
in the New Testament, when Paul tells the Romans, your love should be sincere, it literally means without masks. The word hypocrite is what they called the people who acted in theater. They would come out on stage with a, a, a mask, and then they would go back and come back out with a different mask on. And so they were called hypocrites. That's where that word comes from. And so to be a person of integrity, to be sincere, is to be without masks. It's to be true, to be, to be real. And walking with Jesus will lead you to a life of integrity. If you're struggling to be a person of integrity, I urge you, get closer to Jesus. Walk closer with him because he's not going to allow us to not walk in integrity because that's who he is. And if we're being conformed into his likeness, we're going to be people who become people of integrity. I may have told some of you this story before, but in the 10th grade, I uh, played high school football. I was too small to be a lineman and too slow to be a skilled player. But I loved football. I loved the contact. So what do they do with people like me? They put you on special teams, right? So I was on the kickoff team. And we were playing um, our arch rivals. They were really good. And we did the opening kickoff and ran down, ran into somebody. And, and their kick returner got hit and fumbled the ball. And we recovered. We didn't score. And so we ended up losing the game seven to nothing. And that was the only play I got to play all game was that kickoff. So we're in the locker room after the game, and the coach walks in, and he says, hey, Applegate. He said, uh, I heard you made that tackle, that hit to cause that fumble. Good job. I wasn't near the play. <laughs> I said, thanks, coach. Maybe you could put me in more, you know? I mean, I'd like to play. So I began to believe this, this silly lie that I made this tackle to cause this fumble to the point where when you're out of high school and you're talking about the glory days like Bruce Springsteen sang about glory days and you talk, the fish got bigger that you caught, the, the home run you hit went further and the tackle you made, man, I blew him up. Like I broke him in half, you know. Well, it didn't even happen. And so we're talking and this was after I, I became a Christian, I was talking with somebody, now, now following Jesus and this game came up and this play came up and I was just, saying about this, remember my tack tackle? <laughs> and the Lord was like, I'm tired of hearing about this tackle <laughs> that you never did, man. Can you just get real? And I, I remember just saying, Lord, I, I'm, I am sorry. That did not happen. I admitted to the person I was talking to, admitted it to God, and walked with a little bit more integrity that day than I, than I was walking in. Third thing, third thing that we're to teach is to affirm humility and submission. Use the acronym TEACH. The A is affirm humility and submission. He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Got to call a timeout. Hold that there. What does he mean by slaves? Because seeing slaves in the New Testament has caused a lot of problems. In the Civil War, they used passages like this to say it was okay to have slaves. And of course we know it is not God's will to abduct somebody against their will and make them work for you. On the other hand, people have seen these verses and say, well, if the Bible affirms slavery, then I can't trust the Bible and I can't trust God. When 
we got to get some context here. When, when you see Paul or the epistles talk about slavery, it's, and, and we gotta, that's what is cool about the Bible, is it was a real letter written by a real person to a real person that was preserved for us. So in the context of the culture, slavery was somebody was working off a debt. It wasn't, you couldn't file chapter 11 or bankruptcy in the time of the Bible. So they would, they would go and they would work for someone until their debt was paid off. So the best way for us to interpret verses like this is to see it as employee-employer relationship. How do you work for your boss? How do you work for your employer? You're to affirm submission and humility in all of us. So he continues, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted, that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Interesting. By our character, by our submission and humility, some, we, we make it more credible when we tell somebody the gospel by how we live our life. Instead of being a banging gong or cymbal, we actually have somebody's ear. We have to remember we have a humble God. God is humble. God is, is that's what separates in many ways Christianity and our vision of God from all other religions is that our God is humble. Our God stooped to become one of us, to redeem us. He suffered for us. Our God got on his knees and washed the disciples' feet. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God who our Father is. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the Father was in Christ washing his very own creation's feet. And as Joel pointed out a couple weeks ago, even his betrayer, Judas, he washed his feet. We know that 1 Corinthians says that love is not proud. We know that 1 John says that God is love. Therefore, we can make the equation know that God is humble. God is not proud. Love is, is not proud. Humility is, is attractive. We're told in, in Philippians, I love this passage of Scripture. This would be a good one to memorize. Philippians 2, um, 3 through 11 Paul is telling the Philippian church to be humble. He says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a firm humility and submission. That's what our, what our Lord is like. And then, fourthly, 
I believe Paul tells him to teach, to continue preaching and teaching the power of grace. Grace is not a one-time deal that we get in our life. We need grace for every area of our life. We didn't create ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't sustain ourselves. Therefore, we need grace in every area of our life. I like to define grace as the power to do what you could never do on your own. It's, it's the God-given power to do what you could never do on your own. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus. He is the grace of God, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Sometimes we try in our own strength to deny ungodliness or to deny worldly desires. You ever catch yourself in that? I'm raising my hand. Well, try harder. I'll, I'll, I'll do better next time. And it's, it's those habits and sins that you catch yourself saying, Lord, I'm sorry I did it again. Lord, I, I never want to do this again, whatever it is. And you try and you try and you try and you don't find the power to change, and yet it's the grace of God that gives you the power to change. He, he says that right there. It instructs us to deny ungodliness. And I think we, we, we forget that Jesus is the grace of God. He's the judgment of God. He's the power of God in us. Our problem is not our morals. Our problem is our beliefs. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. When we know whose we are and let that define who we are, then we find real grace. We find real power in our lives. Learning whose, whose you are is the most important thing that you can ever learn. Who is God? And what does that mean for you? Um, I think when I'm am not behaving the way I should or thinking the way I should, we forget, I forget who's I, who's I am. I forget I'm, I'm the Father's. I'm Jesus's, the Holy Spirit. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to be reminded of that. Um, there's a, there was a movie that came out years ago called Blood Diamond. And in the movie, um, it's, it's a story of a father and a husband. He's the father of three children. And the father is kidnapped and, and put into a diamond mine by the corrupt uh, warlords that were in this civil war in Sierra Leone. And it's based on a true story. And so he was sent to go and mine for diamonds and just held at gunpoint. Well, his son was taken captive and brainwashed by the warlords into being one of their soldiers who shot and killed people and did horrible things, thought, thought horrible things. Uh, as the movie kind of crescendos, uh, he's finds his son, and he's, he's trying to rescue him from this, this camp. And the scene that you're about to see, to me, typifies the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel of the Father, our Father in heaven, reminding us of who we are. And when he does that, it changes our very nature. Check this out. Keep digging, huh? They'll be here any second. Come on. Keep digging. Could it better be there, huh? Yes, yes. Yeah. 
You got it? Have you got it, huh? Yes, got it. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Solomon. What are you doing? Belad Yavanti of the Prao Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Nyanda. And your new baby. The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. That's the gospel. The last thing that Paul tells Titus to teach, to stress, is to hold on to our blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? He says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Who's our God and Savior? It's right there. Say it with me. Jesus Christ. He is God. He is Savior. Don't ever, ever forget that. Don't let anybody ever tell you anything different or take away from who He is. He is our God and our Savior. He's the Son of God who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us for Himself, a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. Hopeful people have their hope in the right things. If, if we put our hope in something, it can be taken away from us. Money can be taken away. Jobs can be taken away. People can be taken away. We can't put our hope or build our, our ultimate hope on things that can be taken away. But what can't be taken away is the promise of eternal life. Nothing, nobody can take that away. Death doesn't take it away. De death leads us to eternal life. It's the doorway. Um, the promise of Jesus' second coming, that's the blessed hope. Assuredly, as he came the first time, he's coming again. And when he does, he's going to set all things right. He's going to wipe away all tears. There won't be any sorrow or suffering. 
He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth, and we're going to be with Him forever. His joy and peace can't be taken away. Those are things that can't be taken away from anything in this life. We know how it ends, right? I've read the back of the book. Hopefully you have too. We know how it ends. Jesus has already won the victory. The war has been won. There are little battles to fight along the way, you bet, but the war has ultimately been won. So what we have to remember is worry does nothing. Worry does nothing but drain us. But hope gladdens our hearts. Hope gives us a right process. We got to hold on to that hope. I learned um, a word this week called future tripping. It has nothing to do with drugs. Future tripping. It's, it's, it's a, 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 the psychological term or psychologist term is anticipatory anxiety. I would call it the what ifs. What if I lose my job? What if I get COVID? What if there's not enough money at the end of the month? It's all those, we make, we, what we do is we, we, we have a crisis in our mind of vain imaginations about possibilities rather than what is reality. And there's no grace for possibilities. There's no grace for me to worry if I'm going to lose my job or to worry if I get COVID because neither are true. Grace can only happen for something that's real. So if you got sick, there will be grace for you. If you lose your job, there will be grace for you. There will be power for you. And so for, if you're anything like me, it's easy to live in the what ifs. What if this doesn't go right? What if this doesn't happen? That's called future tripping. And, and it's the exact opposite of how the Lord taught us to not worry, to not worry about tomorrow, to not worry about next year, to just live in the moment present today. So my prayer in this practical teaching is that we would stress these for ourselves personally, in our homes, and in this church, so that we bring glory to God by how we live. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for us to live in awesome anticipation of your work that you've done for us, that you're doing in us, and that you're going to do when you come again. We love you. We honor you. Lord, I pray for folks in this room that are hurting, questioning, wondering, God, that you would meet them right where they're at. Reveal yourself in each one of us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thank you for your healing. Thank you for hope. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.